Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of PQA Panel Talks. I'm your host, Mike Herchuk, and today we're going to talk about testing and microservices with our panel of testing experts. Today we have Matt and Shaheem. They are experts. I'm going to put that in quotes so that they can define how big of an expert they are, but experts in microservices. Microservices have been interesting to me for a while because they really change sort of the plane of testing. They change how you're testing and how you think about testing. And in certain ways, they make a QA's life easier. And as we get into the discussion, maybe I'll be proven true or untrue about that. So I, I felt that this would be a really good discussion to have because I think there's a lot of people out there that that have not yet encountered microservices or are just on the cusp of encountering them. But it's it's realistically a way that our architecture has been moving for quite a while now. And, and it's it's the norm now. It's not bleeding edge. It's not new. It's what a lot of organizations have just accepted. That's the way that they should have as an architect. First off, let's do some some introductions. So Suhaim, can uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Suhaim, as you said. I've, um, I've been in the testing field since around 2006. I currently run a podcast called That's a Bug. Uh, it's a podcast where we go over one software bug every episode. So uh, any bugs that we find interesting, and as testers, we all encounter bugs all the time that are quite interesting. Uh, and I like looking into why they happen and, and so on. So that's what we do for for the podcast. Yeah, so right now I'm quite interested in looking at uh, new ways of testing and new technologies. I've been looking, actually the last podcast, the one that is getting published right now is about AI and the some of the issues with that. That's awesome. Did you uh, did you happen to catch our podcast last month about uh, AI and machine learning? I did actually. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Oh, good. Glad you enjoyed it. Uh, okay, Matt, over to you. Tell us about yourself. Hi. Uh, so as uh, Mike said, I'm Matt. Uh, I've been in the testing field since 2002. My uh, background is pretty varied. Um, I started in hardware testing and a new product introduction cell uh, way back in the day when we were making millions of cables for very large telecom companies out here in Ottawa. Uh, since then, I've moved on to doing software testing, embedded testing, integration testing, system-wide testing, verticals that have ranged from uh, everything from simple web designs to EMRs and EHRs to e-commerce uh, websites. I've been using microservices or at least the last uh, project that I was on used microservices, and I had tested them for roughly about three years. So I've got a little bit of experience <laughs> with them. Uh, Matt, we're going to have to talk to you and teach you how to uh, extend your credibility a little bit more. Now, Ed, no one believe him. He's super modest. Uh, Matt is super smart and really, really gets what he's talking about. All right, let's jump in and, and start our discussion. And, and as uh, our regular listeners may be aware, we really like to talk by by level setting and have making sure that we're we're talking from the same space. Let's just start with the simple. Some of our uh, listeners probably are like, uh, "What are you talking about, microservices?" I'm just here because I like Mike. So maybe uh, let's start with you, Matt. What what is a microservice? So a microservice is any part of an application that can be removed from the larger monolithic containment that applications have you know, been built in for, for a long time. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that every single application has been like that forever, but uh, taking small pieces of it and making it accessible via a network connection, uh, via an API connection, removing it from 
a larger application so that while it's out on a network or you know through an API connection, as I said, you can easily reproduce it. Uh, you can have failovers, you can update them quickly, you can change what they do uh, without a lot of impact to the rest of the system. It's just a better way of making sure that a, a large application has a redundancy and has the capability of being able to be dynamic and changing over the time, depending on usage, load, um, updates from development teams, that type of thing. Suhaim, anything to add, change, argue about? No, I mean, Matt's got it pretty good there. Uh, like, explained it quite well. Uh, one thing that you can mention is that for things like performance and stuff, if you can't fix a problem right away, one thing you could potentially do, with, depending on the architecture, you could have multiple instances of the same microservice. So you can add extra availability pretty quickly and scale out your environment with microservices a little bit easier. That's something I find interesting. Yeah, me too. I think another one of the things, uh, and we'll get into more details about other things, but one of the one of the details that uh, wasn't absolutely clear when you said that, Matt, is that once you start, it's it's not something that it's like a potato chip. You don't start with just one and then, then you're done. The goal with most monoliths when you start with microservices is you're going to create many and many, many, right? It's the idea of taking all of the functions that might be consumed by multiple options or, or have these other needs and building out a fleet of microservices that that start replacing a, a lot of the functions of the monolith. Not all. There's certainly still things that, that stay within a larger monolith, but it's it's creating a, a host of them to create your needs. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. Mike, I think you're right. It was a bit of a, a miscommunication on my part, but I think the larger view of it is that you don't have a monolith anymore, right? You have these smaller containers that are spread out. So whereas you may have in the past a UI that was running on a, a web server on you know, a, a computer and you would simply talk to a database that was stored on the same computer and retrieve information that way, instead of being you know, all co-located in one place, it's now spread out. And I guess in theory, you could look at the entire system as you know, like a giant monolith, but in, in actuality, it's not. You could very easily take down a service or add a service without impacting how the overall system is going to actually respond. Yeah, so like like that part is interesting, right? So in terms of if you take out one of the services or if one of the services go down, doesn't mean the entire system goes down. So if you take, I don't know, something like Netflix and one of its services go down and let's say the subtitles don't work or something like that. Not, not that that's how Netflix architecture is, but one piece goes down doesn't mean the most critical thing, which is to be able to watch the video, Netflix stays in a degraded state, but a portion of it is not working, right? That's just an example, but that is something nice about this architecture. Yeah, and I mean, even to add to what you're saying, part of what the uh, microservice architecture is all about is the idea that there are these failovers and these fail safes. So if you do have a microservice running that fails, you would have an orchestrator or some type of overseer that would say, hey, that service just went down. I better spin up a new one really quickly uh, and replace it. So you might notice a couple of seconds of your video or your movie without subtitles if we're still using that example. But then, you know, as soon as the scene changes or something, it would come back to you and you would start having subtitles again. So it would, should be a negligible removal of functionality 
when a microservice does fail. Uh, and even more powerful than that is often, uh, generally, you're not restricted to one instance of a microservice either. So you could have 50 of the same microservice serving the needs. And so if one of them goes down for whatever reason, it's reasonably easy for that call to be understood and redirected to another one. So it's, it's multiple ways that it becomes more stable. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And um, I mean, to add to what you're saying, not only is it you've got 50 running and one goes down, but it also works on the other way where you've got 50 running and let's say you're you're using a, an event ticketing site. You're using a site like that and all of a sudden it's 6 a.m. and a huge concert goes on sale and all these people start flooding your websites. Well, those 50 microservices might grow to be 5,000 microservices and they'll stay at 5,000 as the load is there. And then suddenly, you know, as people start buying tickets and they stop, uh, you'll go back down to 50 and your um, resource pool will, will reduce, but you are able to handle the traffic once that happened. So your example is amazingly valid. And yet I have a firm belief that when those tickets go on sale, they shrink to two services <laughs> <laughs> and maintain that through the first hour of the sale. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We do need to be careful when you set something up like that, like because your costs could go up like crazy if you just scale it up to infinity, right? So it's, you do have to set those limits. And I mean, in your in your uh, your systems like AWS, they put caps, right? You you can auto scale to a certain point, and then you'll have set it up so they won't go past that. But yeah, I mean, you have to configure it that way, is what I mean. But we're drifting a little bit, so I'm going to pull us back in a little bit. Uh, this is a testing podcast. Let's let's now that we understand microservices, why are microservices so powerful for testing and quality? And let's chat with you first this time, uh, Suhaim. So microservices are supposed to do like a limited amount of things very well, right? Like so, it it does a, a few things or one thing very clearly. So. For testing, it becomes a bit easier as long as you test that microservice, like you know what it's supposed to do, what it's the inputs and outputs, and you test that. But it is the, the, the more interesting part I find for testing is that you need to also understand how the, all those microservices play well together and how in concert do you need to test that part too. For testing and quality, like it's the same as everything else, in my opinion, any other app, you need to understand the application itself but the microservice on its own, it's easier to test that because you kind of know what it's supposed to do and it's clear, or it should be clear. Uh, hopefully there's some documentation around it that sometimes is auto-generated, uh, depending on what it is. And then you can use that and create the tests for it and, and write automated tests for it that can be run on every release or any merges or however, however you want to set it up in your development cycle. And if there are any regressions, you should be able to catch it pretty quick. Cool. Huh? Yeah, I mean, what you said is completely uh, is completely valid. You know, you've got these new little microservices that you should know what's happening and what's going on uh, inside them with good documentation. What is given to you by the you know the team that's developing the microservice? There's a few things that I would add. One thing that I would really add though is the changeability of the microservice and how easy it should be to update it. You're talking about probably a very small dedicated team of testers, maybe three or four, if it's a, a large microservice kind of working on this. And they're going to be doing updates on a fairly regular basis. Microservices, of course, lends really well to CICD, uh, making sure that you have that continual integration, continual deployment. And part of the continual deployment, of course, is that 
when they are ready to push, it will go to a dev branch or a staging branch so that testers can take a look at it. Having a very easy way, let's say it's easy, uh, a way of updating these microservices, we now have the ability as testers to get changes basically on the fly. Um, no longer do we have to wait for a huge release to happen, wait, you know, maybe two sprints or three sprints till that team's ready to push their microservice. I've worked on project uh, where microservice updates happened you know, on a daily basis sometimes. So it gives us as testers a very good insight into what's happening and how the application is changing. Now, mind you, I, I didn't work on something large like a Netflix or, or um, an Amazon, anything like that. The project I worked on was much smaller with only about 12 containers, microservice containers running. So it was quite easy to see how they all interacted and how uh, the changes affected the functionality of the system just by you know, getting one quick change. So that's that's one thing that I think is really important about microservices and something that's really, you know, it helps us to basically make sure that we're catching the changes quickly. It's the, the fail fast and, and fail often type of mentality where it's, you know, there's a change, oh, we catch it right away. We don't have to wait until the information's at the end of the line before we're able to actually verify it and make sure that it's, that it's correct. Yeah, I agree with that. Like that's uh, it, it's kind of nice to get things, like if let's say you're building some type of UI and the backend, is is uh, quite often many projects I've worked on where the backend comes first, so you get the API calls or the microservice bit first, so you can you can write those tests right away. And once the front end is ready, you kind of know that the backend's good to go. And you can also let's say the opposite happens, you can also if you have the documentation, you can also do mocks and write your tests. And once it's ready, you can just run those tests, and it'll be good to go. So you, the, your development cycle gets faster by doing it that way too. So uh, this was going to be a later question, but just for uh, those who don't know, uh, can you just tell me a little bit more what a mock is? Yes. Yeah, so let's take an endpoint and you you want to kind of mock out what it's going to return. So you make your call and you you know what you're supposed to get back. So a lot of tools do that, like Postman, for example, does that. You can create a mock and call it against that because you don't have an actual like a service that's running at the moment so then that's what you do to kind of simulate the service or the rest api in this case yeah we used it a lot for external calls so that we weren't dependent on we made calls out to facebook and twitter and so on and their their stagings are are very undependable and it can take a lot of time so it can take your test runs and make them unstable so we would you'd mock that out because you know what you're supposed to get back because that's not what you're actually testing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. If it is not your, like what you're testing or your product, you don't particularly care if something fails on that end on the external system. So you, you can definitely, yeah, I would use mocks for that too. Or if that microservice hasn't been developed yet because it's actually in phase three, sprint seven, and but you want that data to be able to test what you've built. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the use case that I've had to deal with more. Uh, one of the things that I really like about microservices is how strongly and naturally they lend themselves to automation. And you touched a bit upon this, Matt, when you talked about uh, putting it into CI, which is, is there controlled, well-defined interfaces and well-defined functions? So you can pretty much write automation quickly without a lot of uh, looking for things and without a lot of trouble. And they also run really fast because they're, they're component level tests. So rather than a GUI test, which is hard to maintain, brittle when changes happen. And then it also takes three to 30 seconds for your for your scripts to run. 
they run in the 20 to 100 microsecond uh, time frame, depending on the So you can build a lot of them. They can run fast and they're not difficult to maintain because they're so simple. And so it's, it's kind of like the testing pyramid where you have a whole bunch of them and each individual test doesn't prove a whole lot, but 500 of them proves that your backend is still going to be working fine. Yeah, I agree with that. The best way to kind of set things up is to have automation in mind. And I might be jumping a question ahead because I think one of the ones is uh, what skills and tools are necessary to test microservices? And hey, hey, good segue. That's exactly the next uh, topic. So go ahead and answer that. <laughs> sure. So I think that you need to have a certain amount of automation skills or at least scripting skills to test microservices. If you're going to be making mocks or using stubs or something of the sort, you're going to have to be able to you know, gener- not generate them, but write those in a way that they're useful and that they can be run. Can a manual tester hope to test microservices successfully? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I've actually had manual front-end UI testers have to start scripting once we started going into microservices so that they were able to keep up and to provide you know, good testing for it. You could you know, connect to it through Postman and have a bunch of mocks already to go and hit run and have it returned to you. Um, but the way that I've had it kind of fleshed out is that every microservice that runs in a container had a partner quality container that would run with it. And that partner would contain basically the mocks, the stubs, the API calls. And uh, when we would do continuous integration, it would be spun up, run next to the container, talk to that container, and then spin down. I would not expect a manual tester to be able to go in there and update those and, and to use them. And in fact, depending on how technical the manual tester is, you know, a lot of these containers are running a Linux kernel, something of the sort, uh, you would have to understand how to use a Docker command line to bash into the Linux box to be able to connect to the command line in there itself so that you can actually see what's going on. So I say yes, I, I think a manual tester can do it if they have some technical background. Yeah, so, I mean, there, there may be a different way to approach it too, right? So in, in your case, yeah, definitely. When it's uh, it's kind of early on in the process, but what if it's the UI is already developed and you're kind of doing some type of regression and you run into some type of bug um, in the UI? So now there's a couple of things a manual tester could potentially do. On, in Chrome, if it's a web UI, a web product, you can go into the network tab uh, and look at the error right, the call that's being made and look at the error. And that is something I expect a manual tester to be able to do. The other option is uh, server-side logging. And there's lots of tools that that aggregate all those logs now. Splunk is one I have a lot of experience with. So those things, I would assume that there's some type of dashboard or some type of um, like a query being made for that that's already available for your product at that time. So you can go in and look for that error. So now you have two data points for your bug. So, and hopefully be able to diagnose the problem by those error messages. But this is all dependent on whether you have this all set up. And uh, so I, I agree with you for the most part, except that I think analysts can do a little bit more on the other side of things, even if they're not overly technical. But at the front end, when I say front end, at the beginning of the, the cycle, definitely they do need to be a bit more technical. Yeah, and that's a, that's an extremely fair point. You know, I should have prefaced it with the project that I worked on was in early stages, um, and we didn't have 
you know, the, the logging setup, uh, it was not high on the priority list for some reason. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, they just never got around to actually implementing the logging. So for us to, re to receive logs, we would actually bash into a Linux box and cat the file out and copy paste it and send it to a developer. So yeah, it, it wasn't set up in a way that it was nice for testers. Let's put it that way. They, they didn't build that into the, into the architecture to begin with. Yeah, no, that's completely fair. And I've done that in the past too. And uh, yeah, it, having a tool is is quite nice. But on the front end though, on, on the browsers, I, I do think that manual testers, I would expect them to be doing that right now. I would consider that a pretty common thing to do. But I mean, I, I don't know if that's the case or not. But the ones I worked with, they do the, uh, usually do that. Well, I think it's a minimal expectation that we should have of every tester who's going to call themselves a senior and wants to stay relevant. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I, I would say, Suhaim, that what you were talking about is less about testing the microservices and doing an integrated or end-to-end -end test or, or however you want to say it of the system that includes microservices as part of it, right? Yeah. So when there's a failure, being able to dig into the logs, but you're testing the system at that point and not testing directly the microservices. Which That's is true. But, but the point I was trying to make is that during that time, you can at least pinpoint the microservice by looking through the network tab and understanding yes. where it's coming from. And, and as long as you have some type of idea of the architecture, you should be able to give a lot more information. And so as a tester, when we find a bug, the more information we give, the better, right? And hopefully we get to the point where we can almost figure out the, the exact cause of the bug. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, I mean, the statement is that if you live in an ecosystem that has microservices, you have to grow your knowledge to the point where you can do the things that we've been talking about, or you will find yourself losing your relevance. True. Yeah. 100%. Um, one of the things you said that uh, when you when you were actually testing microservices, Matt, that was interesting to me is, is yes, you can go into Postman. You could, could, if you learn enough, you can manually create the statements that can that can manually sort of test the microservices. But my thought when you were saying that is like, yeah, but now you've done three quarters of the job of automating it. As soon as you've developed that that hit that you <laughs> want to make, it's like, yeah, you just wrap a little bit of a framework around that and then boom, you can run it every True. time. Um, so I guess I, sh I should clarify that we use Postman to, so the way that I look at automating this, and this is probably more of an automation question than a microservices question, but the way that I like to look at automation is so you write the manual test case first and you run the manual test case. If the manual test case passes, then you know you can automate that test case. And for me, a test case needs to be written, like a manual test case needs to be written in a way that an automator can look at it and say, I can do all those steps one at a time. And I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who will disagree with the way that I, I do this, but because of the architecture that I like to use when I spin up a new project, if I'm you know given free reign over it, is that every time that a test runs, it comes back and passes a test step. So having said that, what I like to do is Postman is a good way to check that manual test step and make sure that it works. But would I use Postman in a larger automation framework? Probably not. I'm going to use like a, a robot library in Python, or I'm going to write it in Java, something of that sort, so that it's not using something like Postman. I, I consider Postman a manual tool. So if it works, yes, it's good. You're right. I get three quarters of it, but that last quarter is going to be going to the actual framework and writing it in some coding language to, to complete the task so that it runs quickly. It's small enough to fit into, like I said, into a Docker container that contains the QA framework to run 
alongside the microservice. Well, Matt, you've just signed yourself up for a conceptual automation discussion at a future date, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna move along now on the uh, on the microservices discussion. Think about agile waterfall. Doesn't matter. You're gonna write a test strategy. You're gonna write a test strategy that tells you this is the test you're gonna write. This is how you're gonna write them. This is where they're gonna go. How how does that different from uh, when you have microservices as a core part of your architecture? Is it different? Maybe it's the same. And Maybe in framing your answers, uh, I'll give you the give you the idea of does it change regression testing much? And let's talk with you. Uh, start with you, Suhain. I don't think it changes regression testing uh, greatly. I, I do think understanding your microservices uh, depends on what it is, right? So at, at what level of the project you're on, understanding all the microservices that you're responsible for, and understanding how they all interact is important. And as a strategy, you need to know like which microservice does what, everything of that and that chain here. But other than that, personally, I don't find the testing strategy changing very much. The automation continues at the microservice level, which you presumably already have at that point. And at the UI level, it's the US Selenium tests or anything of that sort still stays the same. It doesn't matter if it was microservices or not, because you don't really care at that point, usually, if you're testing the UI. But on the back end, it becomes a bit easier uh, because you're testing just the microservices individually, usually. That, but if, because if you're going to add in the same flows at the microservice level again, then you kind of then your UI test and this becomes redundant. At least that's my opinion. I know there's Matt. Maybe you would disagree, but I'm kind of curious which what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So for me, the test strategy I think takes a bit of a turn. It's important to you know understand where the automation is going to be and things like that, but understanding the contracts between the different microservices and how you're going to test those, I think becomes a much bigger part of the functionality. You know, the end-to-end -end test, if you're on the UI and you're trying to do something and it returns, I think that becomes, at least in my opinion, that becomes almost I don't know, a second type of test compared to if you're doing the microservices. The, the setup, I think, has to be that you're looking at the low-level back-end stuff that will bubble up to the UI because the whole, as I kind of said earlier, the whole thing about the, the quick changes, you know, it, it might take you 30 seconds to go through a, a UI test to find an issue. Whereas if you're testing the microservice directly, you can find it in milliseconds if you're using an automation framework to, to do that type of test. So for me, test strategy changes, right? It, it's no longer, let's look at the UI and everything will fall into place. It's more of a, let's start at the microservices and build up from there. Yeah, no, I, I, okay, that's fair. I agree with that because you do test the microservices, but you also test the UI is why I'm saying it doesn't change very much. Mm. Um, because you, you do test, it should be by that point, part of your routine, it could be a nightly run or part of CI CD or whatever. If anything at the microservice API level is failing, you'll catch that right away. But when it comes to regression, when I think about regression, I'm thinking about the whole picture. You would still test the UI and that part doesn't really change but hopefully by that point the number of bugs because of back-end things should be hopefully negligible because you already caught those things but there may be cases where you don't catch it just because let's say there's an architecture with like 30 or 40 microservices or even more and one of those things changed and you have one microservice that you test individually or independently does not know about the other microservices that is kind of working together in your UI. At least that's where I have found bugs uh, usually. 
So then that you usually catch in the UI or through other kind of testing or integration testing or something of that sort. Uh, well, I'm probably going to move us along a little bit. Sorry, we're running running a little uh, long. So that was a good conversation, though, and, and uh, maybe we can continue that uh, in comments and stuff after if, if people ask questions. But you did raise a question for me um, as you're looking at your strategy, and you talked about, hey, we have a mix of microservice automation tests and we have Selenium tests. Should there be an expectation that because you now have a bunch of focus on your microservice testing, that you're going to decrease the penetration or the width of your Selenium testing? Or is it really you're just adding a bunch more tests? I think you should reduce it like the testing pyramid thing. I think somebody mentioned that earlier. You should be at that point be comfortable reducing the UI tests that you have. But I do find that you still need it because you do end up catching some, well, you do catch front-end issues sometimes. Well, that's kind of why you write them. But you don't need as many, like all those negative cases and things like that, which you probably used to do before. You don't need that as much. That's what I think in, based on my experience. I don't know if I agree with that. For me, I, I think you still need the negative cases because developing a UI, if you are writing something uh, that, talks to the back end, you still have a UI component that could have issues with it where you, you, you know, boundary testing on a field or or what have you, right? So there are some issues in there, I think, that where you do still have to have uh, quite a few negative test cases. And in my opinion, if you are at the point where you have automation running against microservices, you should have automation running against your UI. And if you have automation against, running against your UI, regression should be quite simple because you'll know ahead of time, of course, your UI is going to change and understand where uh, test cases need to be updated, which allows your tester more freedom to do some exploratory testing or negative testing on the UI. So I think it kind of is the opposite where you have time to do more of the negative, more of the exploratory if you have you know, a decent UI test automation uh, library that you're going to run. So when you say exploratory, do you mean like writing the automated test itself or just like a manual exploratory? So what, what do you mean by that one? Manual exploratory. My the way that I like it to run is if you have if if you're writing manual test cases, you're running them once they pass, you automate them. Then in theory, your automation is now taking care of running your manual tests for you or your checks. Let's call them checks if you want to. Um, and that gives you more time as a, a manual tester to actually poke the bear and see if it reacts at all. Yeah, so I, I used to do that too and agree with, but then then what happens in the long term? At least it's easier. Like you do get a lot more confidence if you have all those things automated in the front end. And but by the way, the first point you mentioned about the uh, negative test cases, you're right about that. I just didn't think through that point there. So you do want that, but I don't. I don't think I would go to every single field. So if there's a page, there's like ten fields, and you want to check negative cases for each field, I wouldn't do it just because you make sure you check the UI behavior because I, presumably they're all the same and check that uh, because you already kind of tested the backend part of it already. But now because of the whole testing pyramid thing, if you subscribe to that thought, then I would reduce the amount of UI tests, Selenium tests for that reason, because you kind of cover some of it already, but it's depending on the project, right? So, yeah. and you, you can decide how you want to do it and the amount of risk you're willing to take. Yeah, I totally get it's a risk, not mitigation, but like it's it's a risk analysis to see 
what happens. I guess in like just to, to quickly counter what you were saying, if you, if you have 10 fields on it and when they were developed, somebody has to test them and they pass, then why not automate them? And then you don't even have to check one of them. So the reason there's, I'm going to stop you, Matt, because I'm going to tell yeah. you the reason, then we're going to move on. So that's just going to be annoying for you. The reason is a lot of the reason that we're going to CICD is so we can get to continuous delivery and continuous delivery doesn't work when your automation runs take longer and longer and longer. So there's ways to optimize your parallelizing, et cetera, but UI tests are expensive in terms of time, in terms of maintenance, in terms of everything else. So what, what you have to do is build this balance and accept certain amounts of risk and put the safeguards around it so that you can get your build time with tests down to an hour so that you can then push within that hour. So you can push multiple times a day. And that just doesn't work. Like all us testers love the idea that, hey, I can just have more tests and I can have absolute proof of everything. But we live in a universe where people want to be able to get stuff out fast. And so what we have to do is build our unit test, build our our microservice tests, make them into our safety net. So that gives us a really high level of confidence and then have some GUI tests that maybe do an end-to-end or test critical functions for that. And and you're right, it, you're just like, but I've written all these tests and they do all these wonderful things. And they're like, yes, but it takes three hours to run and that's too much. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing you could potentially do is like, let's say you have all those tests, um, I mean, just to, as another thought, you could tag the ones you want to run. Yeah. And depending on what's happening, but that's a, that's a whole other podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is because I, I, I get where you're going, Mike. I, I get it. And, and we can have that discussion tomorrow. Um, uh, so uh, we're going to wrap up pretty soon. Well, you mentioned one term that, that is a very common microservice term that I don't think people have a great understanding of. So Matt, define a contract. So a contract is uh, simply the stated output from a microservice that it will send to uh, another microservice as a provider. Uh, and then the other side of the contract is what a microservice can consume as a consumer and what it would understand. So uh, you would have you know, a, a file stating all the data that it could accept and how it would be able to accept it. And that is what you would base your tests on um, when you're doing mocks and that type of thing. You would already know what that microservice is supposed to accept and what it's supposed to send out. So you can very easily create that environment to send the data to it and to receive data from it to verify if it's doing it correctly. The other nice thing about contracts too is if something has to change, you just update the contract and it basically gives you a good overview of all the changes that have happened to that microservice. Good. I think I think that works for me. Is there anything you'd like to add, Sahane? No, uh, I agree with that. Awesome. So I think that it's reasonably clear. If, if our listeners do not, please reach out uh, through comments and social and uh, on the via the podcast links, and, and we can continue that conversation. Okay, so uh, we've used up our time. I'm just going to throw it. You've got uh, 25 seconds each to uh, wrap it up and tell us, hey, microservice is good or bad for testers. Let's start with Suhan. I think it's good. Uh, just an easy way to understand the system and, and being able to test that really quickly. I think it's a good thing. Awesome. Matt? Yeah, I think microservices are good as well. It gives you insight and it allows you to kind of see where the system is falling down without having to go through a bunch of log files and being able to give more value to the developers. 
that's that's awesome. Although I don't always think that I want to give more value to the developers. Developers more value to the products, more value to the company, more value to the client. Developers yeah. more value to the but developers that. who broke it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Good. I like I like the way you said that. All right. Well, so uh, that was awesome. We actually had uh, a little bit of debate in this one. We're not uh, always in the same path, so that was good. Thank you so much, guys. I think that this was a great discussion. I think it's going to help our uh, listeners understand microservices to a lot more depth, and that's great. So as always, as I've already said, if you'd like to add to the conversation, we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, questions, et cetera. So you can find us at PQA Testing on Twitter, in LinkedIn, on Facebook, or on our website. You can find links to all of our social media and website in the episode description. We'll also put a link up to That's a Bug, which is Suhaim's podcast there. So you can go and check it out. It's pretty good. I've enjoyed the uh, episodes that I listen to. It's really smart. And if anybody wants to join in one of our podcast chats or has a topic that they'd like us to address, please reach out to us. If you are enjoying our conversations about everything software testing, we'd love it if you could rate and review PQA Panel Talks on whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you again for listening. And we'll talk to you again next month.